groundbreaking research. Cutting edge ideas. The future of society. For inquisitive minds. F-I-M. Welcome to the podcast. It's Sally and Upile. And today we have Mattia Pinto. Mattia Pinto. Did I say it right? You did say it right. Did I say it right? Yeah, it was good. It was good. Most of you said good. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what we aim for. How do you say your name? Like, what's the proper... Mattia Pinto. Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Nice, nice. And where is that from? <laughs> I come from Italy. I live near Milan in Piacenza, which is not very famous. Half an hour far from Milan. It so usually now. I say Milan. Okay, oh, fair enough. Nice, nice, nice. But Milan's beautiful, right? It's a fashionistic town. It's got like lots of really top-notch people, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah I like Milan. I studied in Bologna, so I, I prefer Bologna, which is uh, like Piacenza. The town where I live is between Milan and Bologna. And I think I prefer Bologna. It's, it's better for young people. Nice, nice. Would you say you're young? I, yeah, I'm 25, so I'm still young. That's old, oh, mate. Come on, that's old. <laughs> that's like, you know, you need a walking stick for that one, buddy. I'm only 18. But I'm turning 26 in one month. So. Hey. Oh, wow, there we go. There we I'm, go. Turning well, to, I'm turning 28 in how many months? Like, I, I, months? I'm 28, right? I'm 28. You're pretty much 28. This is the 28th year setting in. Can, can I ask a, a dumb question? Does this Bologna, is that where spaghetti bolognese come from? Yeah, sure. Nice, I knew it. I knew it. Lasagna as well, tortellini as well. No like it's a good place where to eat. So and wait, wait, wait. Do you own Matt? Are you? Does he fun? own Bologna? Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. The 25 year old. I don't own Bologna. Bologna but yeah. I don't. Family. Own, I I have like my grandparents are from Bologna. My mother is from Bologna. Yeah. So yeah, when I studied in Bologna, I stayed with my grandparents. Oh, wow. And they must make really good food. Yeah. Yeah, that's the reason. So the first year I said, okay, I went to Bologna. Yeah. The, the first year I, I said, okay, let's try to stay with my grandparents. And then I said, like, the next the next year we'll move out. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered my grandparents' food. And I said, no, I want to remain here. You want to stay. Yeah. <laughs> what was the best thing that they made? Um, like... Ragù alla bolognese, I think, was the best. What What is that? Like, it's the um, bolognese sauce. Like, wow. like spaghetti bolognese. Yes. Or like, oh, wow. But with, like, real, like, very good meat. And I think you have to cook for eight, nine hours. And eventually, it's extremely good. You know what? I've got an idea. What? One big idea. Yeah. Let's open a restaurant. <laughs> Let's do it. I mean, come on. That's it. It's as simple as this. We just, I don't know, go outside or have a van and just sell... Something Bologna? Spaghetti alla Bolognese oh. or ragù alla Bolognese. Ah, epic. Yeah, but we have to be able to pronounce it. You can't even pronounce it. No, it's fine. Now we just do the cooking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you do the selling and then you just be the brand. You just be the brand. I see. Yeah. yeah. Good, 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 good. So, um, awesome. Thank you very much for being you know, on the show and we've been very excited. That This is getting so formal, man. Yeah. I don't know. Like, like Upele just toned it down. Just... I want to go back and talk about Bologna. Uh-huh. Bologna? Bologna. Bologna? It's extremely difficult, I think, to pronounce if you are not an Italian native speaker because, like, um, G-N is pronounced Nye, which is, I think, a sound we only have. That's cool. Yeah. That's really, really cool. <laughs> All right. And, and, and I guess, yeah, it would be quite also interesting to talk about your topic, what you're studying, what you're doing. Um... Tell us about where, <laughs> what's... It's, yeah. 
What yeah, are you laughing? Was, what are you laughing actually? I'm laughing because I was trying to segue into it somehow. I was going to be like, oh yeah, spaghetti Bologna, Italy. You studied in Italy for five years. Yeah. I, I did. And then I was going to I just made that. it awkward, haven't I? Yeah, and cool. then you were like, tell us your topic. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. I think, yeah. Okay. Right. Fine, right. fine. You studied Easy. in Italy for five years. Yes, I studied in Bologna for five years. I studied law in the oldest university in the world. Whoa. The University of Bologna is considered to be the oldest university of in in the world, and like the Faculty of Law was the first uh, funded faculty. So in the world, in the world, in I think I I'm not sure, Googling but it's around right one thousand eighty three something like that. Wow. And did you go to the university knowing it was the oldest or did you just go because you were like, I got to go to university and then you're like, oh, it's the oldest. I knew it was very old. I I don't think I knew it was the oldest. Oh, wow. Okay. Until you actually went there. Yes. And then like the first year you have to study history of law and like they stress a lot about the fact that it was the oldest university in the world and that you are still, you should be like grateful for the fact that you're studying there. And Yeah, I bet. I, bet. I would have thought LSE was the... Uh... Oldest university. No, LSE is so new. It was funded 100 years ago, a little bit more. So it's not very old. Just ignore that cough that happened there. Yeah. So no, I think, I think the Queen's Library is the oldest university. <laughs> <laughs> wanna... Everything is the oldest because it started in the UK, right? There's nothing else outside the UK until the UK decided. There's I didn't say UK. that. I mean, just... history says that. I'm just, I'm just you know. <laughs> <didn't say> <laughs> Oh, but it's interesting, interesting. So, and what kind of law is this, like just general law? So, yeah, in Italy, um, the program of if you want to study law and if you want to become, I don't know, a lawyer, a judge, doing something with law, yeah. you have to study five years. Okay. It's only five years. There is no division between undergraduate studies and master's studies. Right. So you study five years. Uh, you should do like an internship. And after this internship, you can become, you can uh, take the exam to become uh, either a judge or a lawyer, an attorney. During my fifth year, yeah. I had the opportunity to do this double degree program with King's College London. I was admitted to this program eventually. So I came here in London and I studied transnational law, which is a particular approach to international law, trying to mix uh, both private international law and public international law, like trying to see international law not only as the law of the state. So traditional international law is the law of the state. The main actor of international law is the state. Whereas transnational law tries to see inter international law in a broader way, uh, including other actors such as uh, multinational corporations, NGOs, states, but also international courts. At the same time, tries to not only talk about binding law, yeah. so treaties or uh, customer international law, but yeah. also soft law. So law which is not binding, but somehow is influencing uh, gotcha. uh, actors. And, this, and this is the topic that you're working on now? Like This is like the general framework. Within this framework, my topic stands. So. Okay. Why, why is it so important then? What, what's wait, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. Can I, can I ask a quick question? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. The, you said private international law and public international yes. law. What is, what is the difference between the two? So public international law is the, um, the law that regulates um, the states within each other's. Okay. So, for example... Um, the European Union probably has this a lot, right? The, like, uh, the European Union is a bit different because it's, uh, we, we can call the law of the European Union as supranational law, which is 
a mix between domestic law and international law. It's something particular. But for example, human rights framework or the UN. The yeah. UN is the most example is the most clear example of international law. And like the resolution of the UN Security Council are binding but, but that's international public international law. That's public international law. So Whereas part? private international law uh, regulates like the the relationship um, between states with regard to individuals and especially when to apply domestic law with regard to particular situations. An example can be if we have to regulate something that, for example, is concerns both to states, which law applies? Yeah. The domestic law. So not yeah. treaties, not international treaties, which is public law. It's called also conflict of law. So which domestic law, national law, applies yeah. to individuals that somehow are of concern of two, two or more states. Okay, gotcha, um, gotcha. So, for example, I'm Italian, I'm here. Where do I have to pay taxes? That can be... But where do you have to pay taxes? That's a that's a private international law. Like tax law, international tax law is complicated because it's both public and, and private. Okay. Um, but, for example... Let's make it an easy example. If, uh, if, for example, if a um, um, corporation, a multinational corporation, yeah. uh, wants to, um, can, can I can I give you an example yeah, sure. that I that I think might help? So let's say that I'm a fisherman, okay, right? and I am fishing on the the coast of Italy. Can you fish on the coast of Italy? Do people? Yeah, do yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm fishing on the coast of Italy, and um, I catch a bunch of fish that's in the water that's shared amongst a bunch of other yeah, countries. Yeah, that, that, that's a case of private international law. Okay. Uh, gotcha. Deciding which kind of law applies in your particular case if italian law or i don't know french law uh, yeah. spanish law uh, okay or gotcha. libyan law i don't know gotcha gotcha and if it's public international law it would have to be for that whole uh, public international law is about the relationship between states so for ah, okay, example so um, on a higher level than yes on a domestic level. where while dom- uh, private international law concerns dom- like different domestic national laws public international law concerns uh, treaties and customary international law. So treaties are like international conventions, for Mm -hmm. example, uh, dealing with terrorism. So if, for example, the UK, Italy, France decide decide to establish this convention to fight against terrorism, and they decide, for example, to harmonize their legislation, Mm -hmm. in this case, like the general treaty setting out the requirements of the state, this is public international. Yeah. So personally, I'm more interested in public international law than in private international law. Which would make sense because it sounds cooler. Now, before we go deep into this, um, just going back to your topic. So what, why is it so important? So everything that we just discussed now, what's so important about it? How can you simplify it in a simple sentence? So my PhD research is about the relationship between two areas of law of law, yes, Uh, human rights and criminal law. And in particular, I would like to analyze, I'm analyzing the role of human rights as drivers and sources of national and international uh, criminal law. The importance of this topic uh, is this. So from a theoretical point of view, human rights and criminal law are traditionally presented in opposition. So human rights are seen as promises of freedom from state interference. 
so the human rights protect the individual against uh, state abuses. An example of human right is, for example, prohibition of torture. Wait, I've got a better example. So let's say that you're eating spaghetti bolognese. Yeah. And it's your grand grandparents' favorite spaghetti bolognese. And I come out of nowhere and I steal your spaghetti bolognese. Criminal law applies, right? <laughs> but if I'm really hungry and I've not eaten in a couple of days, I can argue that it's my human right to get food. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Th that's very good. That's very good. A good example. So the right to have food is a human right. Or like an, another uh, clear example is prohibition uh, against torture. If, for example, if you come to me mm -hmm. and to have my spaghetti, you yeah. start torturing me, you start yeah. like harming me. Yeah. In this case, it's another human rights violation. So I have to say uh, once I love the way you say spaghetti. <laughs> so, yeah. Spaghetti. Spaghetti. Anyway, so yeah. So, <laughs> From a traditional point of view, human rights are protection of the individual against state abuses. Conversely, criminal law is uh, one of the most prominent instruments for the state to use its coercive power. Uh, through criminal law, people are investigated, prosecuted, tried, punished, and eventually incarcerated. So when you are incarcerated, when you are put in prison, obviously the state is interfering with your autonomy. This interference can be legitimate or can be arbitrary, can be legitimate. Um, so if you actually committed a crime yeah. and the trial is fair and yeah. eventually you are convicted and then punished by a court that is established by law, obviously in this case the state is interfering with your rights, but from a legitimate point of view. Mm -hmm. um, if the state do not apply, does not apply, for example, the principle of our trial, or if the state does not apply the law in a correct way, in this case, the state is violating your rights. Mm -hmm. So in this way, we can see that human rights and criminal law can be seen in opposition. So there are human rights that protect this, the individual against the state. An example is the presumption of innocence. Mm -hmm. Or another example is the prohibition against torture or against inhuman and degrading punishment. Mm -hmm. Another example is, for example, the habeas corpus. So yeah. the right of the individual to appear before a court of law when he's accused of something. Um, so, so are you arguing a position? Are you saying one is more, I wouldn't say one is more right, but one is more justified in certain cases? Or are you looking at specific cases and proving why human rights is more important than criminal law? I'm not really trying to understand um, which is more important because there are two areas of law. From a theoretical point of view, as I already said, they are in opposition. But at the same time, some authors have noticed, and I also um, start from that point of view, uh, human rights can also um, be seen as triggers, as drivers of criminal law. So before I said that human rights and criminal law are in opposition, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they can complement each other. And this is paradoxical because we have said, I've said that human rights protect the individual against arbitrary use of criminal law. Yeah. But at the same time, human rights can be invoked mm -hmm. to apply more criminal law. Um, a clear example is in case of mass abuses of atrocities. So, for example, um, after the Rwandan genocide, mm -hmm. the international community decided to establish an international criminal tribunal mm -hmm. to prosecute those who committed 
human rights abuses in Rwanda. In that case, human rights were invoked by the international community to establish an international criminal tribunal. So to use criminal law to protect rights. Mm -hmm. So human rights do not only limit the scope of criminal law, Mm -hmm. but human rights also trigger and are the drivers of, of some more of criminal, criminal law. law. What, what got you excited about this? Why does, why does a 25-year-old care about the impacts of criminal law on society or the impacts of human rights on criminal laws and vice versa? I think it's uh, extremely important, at least for me, because uh, these two areas of law really have a lot to do with the individual, the person. I'm not a criminal. Okay, all right. I Are you a criminal? I'm, I'm not a I'm criminal. Not, not. He's a criminal, really. <laughs> but obviously, I used, I used to be a like, criminal, by the way. Criminal law <laughs> is like when you think about law. Yeah. Um, like when a person, a person who is not into law, thinks about law, you immediately think about a crime. About if you think about, for example, a trial proceedings, you think about a criminal proceeding. Because that's a perception. That's yeah. This is the perception. So, like, I think criminal law can be seen as like the most the clearest example of law of a state yeah. because it's the most prominent one. And human rights, on the other end, is a particular branch of law because it tries to protect the individual, but at the same time, uh, rights are more than that. Rights are not only legal principles, but they are also moral precepts, they are also political ideas. That, that, that's, all, that's all true, but why does it matter to you? I'm very interested in this paradoxical relationship because I think if we don't understand this relationship and this paradox within these two areas of law, it's very difficult for us to decide, for example, if we want to establish new international uh, criminal tribunals or, for example, in case of NGOs, if they have to prioritize uh, some uh, situations instead of others. So, for example, Amnesty International, which is one of the leading international NGOs, its name has the name Amnesty. So Amnesty is absence of... So Amnesty uh, was born with the idea of promote Amnesty for uh, political prisoners. Now Amnesty is doing quite the opposite. Now Amnesty yeah. is one of the leading NGOs yeah. uh, trying to promote... Yeah. international and domestic criminal law to protect human rights. So Amnesty International is devoting a lot of resources on criminal law trials. I'm interested in raising awareness about this paradoxical relationship to understand why we are doing this. My project is more about raising awareness and to make people that are involved in this aware, in this, of, of aware and, and also uh, to be ready to, to change their, their behavior if they see that what they are doing yeah. is not what they are supposed to do. What, what, I, what I'm really fascinated about, before you jump into your question, uh, how did you get started? So, what, you know, what resources, where do we look? Where do we find out all this information that you share with us? I mean, how can I get started? And oh, how did you get started? Like so, you mean in general, in general uh, to do a PhD or about my particular about your topic? particular topic? So because obviously uh, it's quite an interesting topic. But yeah, sure. So I, after as I said, after five years in Italy and one years in London, I decided to have a gap year, and this in, during this gap year, I had to 
undertook two internships, one at the European Court of Human Rights and the other one at the International Criminal Court, which are international institutions. The first one dealing with human rights issues in Europe and the second one, the International Criminal Court, dealing with international crimes at the international level. And the UK is part of both the International Criminal Court and the European Court of Human Rights. So I undertook two internships there and I got fascinated about the relationship between these two areas of law. I also wrote my two dissertations, the one in Italy and the one at King's College London, both about this relationship uh, from different perspectives. And I said, uh, maybe I'm more interested in studying law than applying it. And so I started reading um, a lot of stuff, a lot of articles, and I got really annoyed by the fact that like this relationship had been no- noted by um, several authors, but they uh, mostly failed to understand why, in, in which way, these two areas of law are so necessarily interconnected, even though they may appear uh, at, the f- at first uh, uh, in opposition. I get really annoyed by the fact that they uh, did, did not really investigate on the role especially of human rights language to legitimize and to justify the application of criminal law and now different actors sometimes even unconsciously end up legitimizing state coercive power and with the risk of like making state abuses more likely i think the original ask was like where did you personally start and so you went to the you went and you did an internship at these different criminal courts? Yes. And that's kind of what initially inspired you to think Triggered about this? something with Yes. You. Yeah, okay. And that's kind of where you were like, I can make a difference here, maybe. I see my PhD as my, as my job, and I had to decide uh, what to do uh, during my life. And I, th- I, I thought, maybe I'm more interested in studying law and making yeah. sense of law instead yeah. of applying it, instead of like being a lawyer, a, lawyer. a practicing, uh, practicing lawyer. So I said, what's the best way to study law? To become a scholar, yeah. uh, an academic. The best way to become a scholar, an academic, is to, to do a PhD. Yeah. And I was very interested in this topic. And so I said, why not spending four years of my life studying yeah. this topic and maybe can become the starting point of my further research. And so I started reading here and there, and eventually I came up with a proposal, a project. I applied to several universities, uh, 10 in total, Uh and eventually I got accepted to uh, many of them, but I decided to go to the LSE for different reasons, for better supervision, also for a better scholarship. And so now I'm based at the LSE. I started in September 2018. During the first year, I have to uh, make sense of my proposal because obviously you write your proposal, which is very short, it's like five, six pages. And then you arrive there and you have to create a project from it, Um, a project that is able to last uh, four years. What what does that consist of? uh, The project is like writing uh, eventually thesis. So eventually in five, in four year, in four year time, I have to produce a sort of book, uh, which oh, wow. um, potentially can be published. Inspire all of us, essentially. Yeah. I'll be inspired. He would definitely be inspired. I think <laughs> everyone will be inspired, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this thesis that you end up writing and then this work that you end up doing, what is the optimal impact? Like when it's all done 
and we all can step back and we can say, you know, thank God that Mattia actually did this research. What are we thanking you for? My PhD research allows me to engage and to foster discussion um, with academics, but also uh, legal professionals who have dedicated their careers to the establishment of a global system of criminal accountability and human rights protection. Ultimate aim of my research is to disseminate knowledge and to raise awareness about the relationship between these two areas of law and to create a world that is easily accessible to professionals and in somehow try to bridge the gap between the world of research and the world of legal practice. Obviously, for people that are not really interested in law, my research can seem a little bit not really relevant. But at the same time, if we think how these two areas of law, human rights and criminal law, can impact with our individual life. So we can all be accused of a crime that we didn't commit, or we can all uh, be involved in a human rights uh, abuse. And we should be really interested in this because, for example, uh, if we are prosecuted for a crime that we did not commit, we are really interested in our human rights to be protected from an arbitrary use of criminal law. For example, presumption of innocence of the trial we are uh, subject on is fair, yeah. uh, the fairest possible. So, I mean, so, one thing, listen, yeah. look, so you mentioned quite good points there. So you've heard about, is it Shamim Bigham, the latest news about the Yes, United yes, States? yes. Yeah, let's take that example, for example, because I felt like I'm now suddenly interested. Yeah. I want to know more. I mean, the society is... suddenly interested? <laughs> like, like 28 minutes into the podcast, you're like, oh, man. No, but, but the point is, first of all, what's your view on that? You're right. Do sure. you think, do you think, you know, with what you're looking into, is she innocent? Is she not in- innocent? How can you Just dismantle? How, how do you dismantle that down? I mean, everyone knows about Shimon. Shimon. Uh, okay, so Shimon was she went to uh, Syria, Syria. Yes. Yeah, and she was she was fifteen. She was mar- fifteen at the time. Yeah, married a an She's, ISIS. Uh, sure, she was British. She, she is British. She's British. Yes. Probably you might know more. Go, go for it. Yeah. Okay, so she was born here. She is British, and when she was fifteen, she she went to Syria and she married an ISIS fighter. Correct. And now the UK government wants to strip her from her citizenship. Oh, she's been stripped now. Or yeah, it's not. It's not really clear. Uh, there is a law in the UK exactly. allowing for um, stripping foreign fighters of their citizenship. So what what what's the reason for this? Because if we you strip a person of uh, is of her citizenship uh, somehow you prevent that person from returning to the UK so it's a way to expel a person so in international law is prohibited to expel a citizen and that's so citizen the, the, cannot be prohibited this is a human rights the mm-hmm. human rights not to be uh, expelled so yeah. if you are a citizen for example if, you, if i am italian and i if i am in, in italy i cannot be expelled from italy yeah. um, only aliens can be expelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, only foreigners can and, be expelled. And that's when there's been, you know, one of the top lawyers is sort of fighting against that, saying actually you can't strip her off because essentially her background she's Bangladeshi, yeah. but she's never lived in Bangladesh at all. She was born here. Yeah. So now she has been stripped off. So you remain stateless. Yes. Yeah. And if you're stateless, your life is compromised because the condition of statelessness is one of the most horrible condition ever. Already Hannah Arendt. Um, said that when you are stateless, you don't have 
nothing because in a, in an international system where the main protection comes from the state mm-hmm. if you don't have a state that protects you yeah. you are completely left on your own so like to be very clear without a citizenship you cannot buy a house you yeah. cannot travel around yeah. you cannot have a job you cannot have you cannot have you cannot do anything. So if you're stripped of your citizenship, you're completely left on your own. And not only the right to have a citizenship is violated, but also many other rights. So deprivation of citizenship is not prohibited in international law in general, but it's really controversial when you deprive a person of his or her citizenship and the person is made as a consequence stateless. So the UK government is saying actually Bagam is not will not become stateless, but because she's a dual national. So which she's also right, she's right. also from Bangladesh. Bangladesh. But many, many people, many lawyers are saying this is not true because she does not have a, a Bangladeshi passport. passport and Bangladesh at the same time does not want to does not want to admit her uh, into Bangladesh. So, so, so what's your so, question? So yeah. what, what, what? So first of all, is that with what she's studying, with what you're studying, is that part of the criminal law? And also, I mean, what happens if you become stateless? And so, so in this case, so this has happened as a real case scenario. So then, this is obviously a human rights issue. Yeah. Um, and in this case, the UK decided not to employ its criminal law. For example, another an alternative would be, would have been to admit back uh, Bagam and to prosecute her for a terrorist offense. Why so did for, you do that? Because I think it's easier for a state to some somehow get rid of a person like that. Uh, yeah, an alternative would be to call back that person and to prosecute her. It's extremely difficult at the same time to prove that the person was really involved in uh, terrorist attacks in Syria because how do you collect evidence in that case? Who's making this decision? Like, who in the UK is is sitting by and deciding that she should be tried under human rights versus tried under criminal law? It's the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs and obviously the government. Like, in... um, I don't even remember now the date, but around uh, five, six years ago, the mm-hmm. UK passed a law to... Um, but allow... Theresa May, Theresa May Ther- passed yeah, a law. Yeah, Theresa May was involved in in this new legislation to to make rev- revocation of citizenship uh, more easier uh, easier and more likely. And Theresa and... May actually does something. I, I just, like, the <laughs> last, last three months, she's been doing absolutely nothing. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we can argue and debate about that, but yeah. Um... <laughs> And so it's a way not to use uh, criminal law or to criminalize without using particular trials. So somehow the consequence is a punishment because the UK is punishing Bagan, but without a criminal Evidence. trial. I mean, the, the thing is, I guess with your topic then, what, we, you know, what you're trying to achieve or what I would envision would be, how do you, you know, this book that you put together, we, I feel like we need to know more, like how... how 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 do they make make these decisions? Why are they making this, this, these decisions? Because I feel like I've been misled. You know, I kind of feel okay. She might be innocent, but then they haven't really, you know, actually, as you said, trial. They haven't gone for a proper trial. They've just stripped her off. So where yes. does that sit at the top in terms of you know human rights, etc.? Because human rights, as you're saying, it should be you can't just strip someone off. You can't just sort of say, oh, that's it. You're gonna be trialed for what without the actual evidence. So. Yeah, that's how I see your research, right? 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's basically that. I don't know that. why it took so long to explain that, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I'm sure you, you, you yeah. No, I'm, no, no, I'm, 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 I'm passionate about this. Morning this podcast stuff. sessions are the best sessions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the same time, like, the, there are many situations that are not very clear. And I you think uh, if we make sense of yeah. the relationship between... Uh, Uh, these two areas of law, namely human rights and criminal law, we can better understand what is happening in our society and not only at the domestic level, but also the international one. And somehow in this way, we can uh, not only better understand, but better make decisions uh, okay. that are extremely relevant for all of us. Can, can I ask two more questions? Yeah. So the the fact that we have citizenship, why is that a thing? Why do we, like, you can be stateless, which is terrible, But why bother even having citizenship in the first place? That's a very interesting question. So if we think, for example, that citizenship became relevant in the last, I think, 200 years, no more than that. Right. Uh, before, citizenship was not so important. So you were born in a particular country. You were from there, but was that was not really important. When, like, the international community, like, the international relationship became uh, made by states, when the, inter the international uh, sphere is composed by states and states are the main actors of international law and international relations. From that moment on, like, the protection of the state became extremely relevant. To be protected by a state, to claim protections, you need to be linked to a particular state. And somehow citizenship is the way that links you to a state. Yeah. And citizenship is extremely important when you are abroad, because if you are abroad, you can claim protection by your embassy, the, the embassy of your state or the consulate of your state. Yeah. If you are a European Union citizen, you can even ask protection from another European Union state. Right. And this is what the UK is living. Yeah. But uh, citizenship smile, is also important if you are in, in a particular state because uh, foreigners are treated somehow differently. A citizen has the right to remain in the state yeah. of his or her citizenship. So, for example, if I live in Italy, I cannot be expelled from Italy. And this is a right that cannot be violated. So, so, so I and guess so that, it's but, a form of protection. But, but, but Obviously, sorry. we can imagine a universe, a world without citizenships. So where everyone is citizen of the world. Yeah. But obviously, in this case, we should accept that the state is no longer the, the main actor of international law. And we should find another way of protection. So at the moment, we are protected by the state, by states, by uh, national courts, by national parliaments. Mm -hmm. uh, we are protected by national uh, police. In order to have like a global citizenship, we should have like a global state, yeah. somehow with a global police, a global army, a global and global uh, courts, mm -hmm. which is like almost impossible in, in today's yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. You had something? I did. So the... The other part of what you were saying was human rights and criminal law. Do you believe that criminals should have human rights? I also kind of believe that in some cases. But then do you then believe that at some point criminals should be stripped of their human rights? And what, what is that fine line? That's a good question. So I really think that human rights are the rights of everyone, 
innocent people and criminals as well. Obviously, before being convicted, you are presumed to be innocent if the state is not able to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that you are a criminal you are still innocent. Mm-hmm. And so in during a criminal trial, you are still innocent and you deserve rights. Mm-hmm. When you are convicted and eventually punished, you go to prison. And I think even in that case, you should have rights. Obviously, your rights will be limited because if you go to prison, you don't have, for example, freedom of movement, which is a human right. Because we should, you, we should think that human rights are not all absolute. Mm-hmm. So some rights are absolute. For example, prohibition of torture is absolute. So even if you are the most dangerous criminal ever, you cannot be tortured. And I think this is fair, because somehow we are respecting the dignity of that person, even though is an horrible person. But not all human rights are absolute. Some are qualified. Some can be derogated. Mm -hmm. And for example, the rights of movement can be derogated. And if you you are imprisoned, uh, you obviously cannot leave the Mm -hmm. prison. Mm -hmm. And in this case, your human right to move is derogated. In In that case, you cannot. Or there are many other human rights that are somehow derogated or reduced when you go to prison. And this is fair because obviously uh, you have to balance the human rights with other uh, important interests of the state. For example, the interest of the state to enforce its law or the interest of the community of society Mm -hmm. to be secured and to to, to live in a secure place. Fascinating. Gotcha. Cool. Um, do you want to give any shout outs to LSC, King's College, your grandparents <laughs> your for making teachers, yeah. you know, I don't know, like, um, yeah, I, I think I'm very grateful for all the institution where I studied, uh, because they gave me all the knowledge I have at the moment. And I think LSC will give me more and they give like LSC has, has given me a scholarship to study there. And so I can live in London and live in this beautiful city without uh, struggling because I can, I just can read and write thanks to this scholarship. So I'm very grateful. Mm. And yeah, that's it. And looking forward to your book, by the way, as well. Thank you. I'm going to be your first buyer. All right. Just, just <laughs> knowing that down. So remember me. All right. I will. Remember I will. this. Okay. <laughs> he will be the second. And buyer. thank you. Thank you for you for hosting me here. It was um, very interesting to talk about uh, my project with you. And and thank you for giving me this this opportunity to express my ideas. Yeah, no problem. No, they, thank we, you. We thank you for your time. Um, if you really wanted to thank us, you could buy a spaghetti bolognese, but that's fine. I know. How, how, what, what is it again? What's the uh, what's the best spaghetti bolognese that you do in Italy? Spaghetti con ragù alla bolognese. <sighs> oh, it's like I'm eating it right now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Check out our page at patreon.com slash four inquisitive minds. Reach out to us. Check out our episodes and, and stay in touch. Check it out.